All right, guys. Well, good evening. Good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me to actually 1 Corinthians? I'm not going to tell you where. Just 1 Corinthians, and I'll, and I'll tell you later. But when you find it, just kind of look up here. We are currently uh, studying 1 Peter, okay? If you're wondering how that happened, uh, you know, but here's what happened. We were working our way through 1 Peter and got to chapter 4, verse 10 where Peter said, as each one has received a gift, talking about the gifts of the Spirit, he said, minister your gift to one another uh, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So uh, that statement by Peter became really the basis for our study, which we kind of launched out into a study on the gifts of the Spirit. We've been doing this now for a few weeks, trying to better understand these gifts so we can use them to uh, edify the body of Christ and to, you know, build the kingdom of God here on the earth. Now, as we have said numerous times, when it comes to spiritual gifts, the most comprehensive list of the gifts comes out of 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 to 10, followed then by the list Paul gives in Romans 12, verses 6 to 8. Now, we've already looked at those two lists. There's three more prominent gifts, uh, prophecy, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, but focused on in detail in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul devotes the entire chapter basically to those three gifts. Now, tonight we're going to start looking at 1 Corinthians 14, but before we do, please turn to chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13. In chapters 12 and 14 of 1 Corinthians, of course, the subject matter is spiritual gifts. But right in the middle of his teaching on the gifts of the Spirit, Paul stops and inserts an entire chapter on the love of God. He transitioned into chapter 13 with these words at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Then he goes on to teach on God's love, agape, which he tells us is so much better than any gift of the Spirit because, listen, all these gifts are going to pass away, but agape love will go on forever. And then he transitions back after chapter 13, back into the subject of spiritual gifts in chapter 14, verse 1, by saying, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy so we'll, we'll get that in a second but let me just say this once again right between two of the greatest chapters on the gifts of the spirit in the new testament paul stops to talk about the love of god as great as the gifts are for building god's kingdom and edifying the body of christ when he talks about god's love he calls it the more excellent way or in other words guys something that goes far beyond the gifts and importance in Paul's mind, having a church filled with God's love is superior to having a church filled with the gifts of the Spirit, like the Church of Corinth. We'll talk about that in more in a second. Of course, the idea would be to have both, the, the gifts of the Spirit uh, in operation, plus a church filled with God's love. And that, to me, is personally what I believe is why he inserted chapter 13 between these two, you know, quintessential chapters on the gifts of the spirit he inserted the chapter 13 to balance everything out he's not that he's putting down spiritual gifts he's just lifting up god's love 
He wants you to have spiritual gifts and to use them. That's why he said to begin chapter 12, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning spiritual gifts. They're very important to the overall health of the body and our, our ability to reach out and touch others for Christ. Gifts are important. Love is the most important. Keep that in mind, all right? Keep that in mind. Now, we talk about the gifts of the Spirit. Remember, Paul opened up his letter to the Corinthians by commending the church in Corinth because the Lord had seen fit to give them, listen, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit into their church. You can read about that, chapter 1, verse 7. So this church had every gift the Holy Spirit gave. They had those gifts in their church, all of them. And yet he opened chapter 3 with a blistering rebuke when he said to them, verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Verse 3, For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men or like unbelievers? The gifts are important. But agape love is the most, most important thing we can possess as Christians. And uh, as we can see very clearly from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, any church, or Christian for that matter, can have many gifts of the Holy Spirit and yet still be carnal and spiritually immature. Again, that's why gifts are good, but love is better. One of the sad truths today is that we have many churches that believe in and practice the gifts of the Spirit, but listen, don't have the love of the Spirit. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are conservative, non-charismatic churches that pride themselves on their doctrinal knowledge. There are some churches that are they're just really into knowing doctrine and creeds and different things. You say, is that wrong? No, it's not wrong if undergirding it all is God's love. But the problem is so often... You have churches that, on the other end of the spectrum, from the Charismatics, you have these ultra-conservative churches, and again, they pride themselves on all their doctrinal knowledge, and they get very smug and arrogant even about uh, everyone on staff has a, has a PhD in theology and so on. So I'm not putting that down. I could care less. And I really believe God could care less. You say, well, how could you say that, Pastor? Because in 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 1, Paul said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Let me just say this to you guys. It's a lot easier to fill our heads with doctrinal knowledge than it is to fill our hearts with God's love. Now, it's available. Romans 5, verse 5 tells us that when we got saved, God poured his love into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. Every Christian has access to God's love. Not every Christian actually walks in that love. It's there, but... We can neglect it. We can refuse to let it flow by being selfish and carnal and so on. I believe the Corinthians were a saved church. Paul calls them brethren. He says God gave to them all the gifts of the Spirit. God doesn't do that for unbelievers. This was a saved church. And yet, if this letter teaches us anything, as we just said, it teaches us that you can have all these gifts of the Holy Spirit. And let me just say this. The church at Corinth was very haughty because they had all these gifts in operation. Just like a lot of charismatic churches are very haughty because they think because they have all these gifts, they are spiritually superior 
to the rest of the body of Christ. Nothing can be farther from the truth. Read 1 Corinthians again. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are no substitute for love. And neither is doctrine. As important as that is, I'm certainly not putting down doctrine. You can't substitute right theology for love, though. You can't substitute the gifts of the Spirit for love. Or, listen, even good works for love. Read uh, Revelation chapter 2, the church of Ephesus. They had a lot of good works going on, but they had left their first love. And Jesus said, you know, even though they got all the good stuff going on, I'm not going to stay in a church where I'm not loved. Now, as we've already mentioned, the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit are two different things. Let me just say that to kind of set this up. The gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit are two different things. As we have said, the gifts are given by the Holy Spirit and can be used immediately. So you can be five minutes old in the Lord and God gives you the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues. You can use that immediately. The fruit of the Spirit is something that is not given, it's grown. It's grown as we are remain connected to Jesus in close fellowship, as we do. And John 15 is a whole chapter devoted to this concept. How when we abide in Christ, we walk in close fellowship with Him every day, it allows the Spirit to flow through us. The Spirit to flow through And as the Spirit flows through us, the fruit of the Spirit is born in us. And the first on the list is what? Galatians 5.22? Love. Love. Gifts are not a measure of spiritual maturity. Gifts are not a measure of spiritual in the Christian life. Fruit is. And again, what leads the list in Galatians 5.22 is love. You show me a church that is filled with God's love, and I'll show you a mature church. You, you show me a church where people are swinging off in the chandeliers and doing backflips and and everyone's prophesying and speaking in tongues. You show me a church of chaos and confusion, I'll show you an immature carnal church. Because the Spirit of God, Jesus said in John 16, when the Spirit comes, he will not draw attention to himself. He will draw attention to me. And I just love it, you know, and forgive me, I'm just, I'm not angry. I get a little frustrated, though. When people from other charismatic churches come here to visit, and right away they see a dead church. Why? Because we're not running around, jumping up and down, and everything. So what do they do? They want to help us to have the Spirit. So they're kind of doing, you know, and look, when I go to visit a church, I kind of want to see what they're into. If they're not an amen church, I don't amen. If they are an amen church, I'll amen too. If they're not a church that all stands up and uh, if they do, I'll stand up and, you know, praise the Lord. If they're very subdued, then I'm very subdued, which I am normally anyways. But the idea is when you do something like this, when everyone's sitting there with their heads bowed and they're worshiping God and you don't, do you think that's kind of a dead environment? So you get up and start, you know, hallelujah and, and you know, kind of bouncing around. What you're doing is you're drawing attention to yourself, and this breaks people's attention from the Lord. That is not of the Spirit. You're not helping us have the Spirit. You're quenching the Spirit. Because the Spirit works through all kinds of different Christians. Some are more emotional, and God has got churches for them. And that's great. Some are more quiet and, and, and solemn in their worship, and God's got churches for them. It's not for us to say, well, because your church doesn't do it the way my church does it, you're not filled with the Spirit, and we are. That's 
that's carnal, and it's wrong. It's wrong. So God's love is the greatest test of maturity, and that's what Paul is basically saying in chapter 13. And look, I'm not going to spend tonight teaching about the love of God from 1 Corinthians 13, as worthy a study as that is. You can go online and access our 1 Corinthians study and listen to the whole chapter and study it yourself. But I do want to look at, a, at the last few verses of 1 Corinthians 13 as a segue into chapter 14 in our study tonight on spiritual gifts. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, Paul said, love never fails. Now he's just gotten done defining agape love. And I'll just say one thing, notice, everything he uses, every word he uses to define God's love as a verb which means God's love is always action-oriented. God so loved the world that he what? Sat there and felt sorry for us? He gave his only begotten son. God's love cannot be immobile. God's love is action-oriented. It sees a need, and it wants to meet the need, if at all possible. So love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Let me look at that for a second. Love never fails, he says. Now, guys, look, please, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that love never fails to produce a happy ending. And that everything will always work out for the best when we apply God's love into a given situation. Jesus loved the whole world, didn't he? And proved it by dying for all of us, for all the people of the world, so that people would not have to perish in hell, but all could have everlasting life. And yet... For most of the people of the world, there won't be a happy ending because they refuse to accept what Jesus did on their behalf. And therefore, they're going to be judged and sent to hell, not because God wants it, because they refuse to accept Christ. So just because God loves someone doesn't mean it always will work out happy ending. Remember the rich young ruler, Mark, is the only gospel that records Jesus looked at him and what? Loved him. Yet he still went away and died in his sin because he would not let his money get off the throne of his heart so Jesus could sit down and be all in all. Guys, just because we apply God's love into a situation doesn't mean it's going to always work out the way we would like. When Paul says love never fails, he means that no matter how it is treated and no matter how hopeless a situation looks, God's love keeps on loving. It never gives up on a person. That's the point. Even if the marriage isn't saved, or the sinner isn't one, or the friendship isn't salvaged, God's love inside of a person keeps loving and loving and praying and doing whatever we can do to see that person one or, you know, a marriage healed or something. In fact, out of all the things that the Corinthians were putting so much emphasis on in the way of spiritual gifts... Paul says that out of all of these, love is the only thing that will never fail or end. It alone is eternal of all this stuff. Now, back in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. When we get to heaven, there will no longer be a need for prophecy. Why? Because God will speak to us face to face. There won't be any need for unknown tongues to bypass our fallen natures. When we pray or praise God, you'll know what I mean by that starting next week when we look at tongues. We won't have any need for tongues, which is a gift that bypasses our fallen intellect. 
which is rooted in pride. Often people will praise God because they have ulterior motives. I'm going to come into God's presence. I'm going to praise Him. Why? Because I really want something from Him. I'm going to kind of butter Him up, maybe. Tongues bypasses all of that. All right, but we won't need it when we're glorified. We have our glorified bodies in heaven. Uh, we won't have a fallen nature or sin to deal with, and there won't be any need for words of knowledge. For they're going to be swallowed up in the perfect knowledge we'll have when we see Jesus. Verse 12 tells us, Of all the gifts the Spirit has given to believers, listen, they are only for our time here on the earth to help compensate for the shortcomings and inadequacies that we face as human beings in these fallen bodies. We have been crippled by the fall. We have been crippled by the fall. And even when we get saved, we're not completely healed of our fallen nature and these bodies are not yet redeemed read uh romans 8 uh, where paul says you know uh we're redeemed but we we long to be fully redeemed we're redeemed in our hearts and spirits but we long to see these bodies redeemed well that will happen at the rapture when the lord comes to give us our glorified bodies so right now even though we're saved we have a new spirit and inwardly the, the, there's an inward man that is our we're saved even though we're saved, outwardly, though, we are still dealing with a kind of a broken existence. So God gives his church gifts. Think of a, a, a person who is handicapped and needs a, a crutch or a cane or a walker to get around. Uh, this appliance helps them to, to be fully functional in some ways. Same is true with the gifts. God has given them to us. It's kind of like a, a crutch or uh, an enablement so that we can fulfill all the work God has for us. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, 9, Paul said, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Now, guys, the debate continues over the exact meaning of that which is perfect that which is perfect many say it refers to the bible they teach that certain gifts ceased these folks are known as cessationists the process of some gifts having ceased at the end of the first century at the end of the apostolic period is called cessationism we are not cessationists as calvary chapel people but um, a lot of folks in the church teach that certain gifts have ceased uh, at the end of the first century, and uh, they ceased when the Holy Spirit finished giving us uh, the New Testament canon of Scripture. In other words, when the New Testament was completely given, the full and perfect revelation of God, there was no longer any need for some of these gifts, like prophecy, words of knowledge, word of wisdom. Since everything they tell us, now this is what they say, since everything man needed to know could now be found in Scripture. Well, Everything doctrinally we need to know is found in Scripture. That's true. God is not giving any more doctrine. The New Testament canon is complete. But I am a firm believer that God has got a personal will for our lives. And you're not going to find that in the pages of Scripture. You have to seek God as to what His perfect will for your life personally is. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not the result of our works, lest any should boast. Verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, before we were ever created, he prepared 
our lives by where we were born, uh, the time we were born into, the family, everything. The gifts he gave us was God's way of preparing us for the work he was going to call us to do. He has got a personal plan for our lives. And those who say he does not, I don't know where in the scripture they're reading, but I've seen Christians and pastors who say, no, God's got no personal will for our lives. Just you know, keep the Ten Commandments and then do whatever you think is right. It's got to, it can't conflict with the Bible, they would say, of course. But you know, you'd make your own decisions. Who you want to marry, uh, what job you want to take, what ministry you're going to be involved in. Well, I don't know, because Paul, when he was working his way across Asia Minor, bounced off a couple of closed doors. He came from the east. He tried to go north, the Spirit forbid him. Tried to go south, the Spirit stopped him. And then uh, had a vision one night of a man from Macedonia, Europe, saying, come on over here and help us. You tell me God wasn't leading Paul? If God led the Apostle Paul, why do we think he's... I mean, if, if Jesus knows every hair on our heads, it's all numbered. Well, it sounds to me like he's taken a lot of care and concern over our lives. And I'll tell you what, who I marry, what ministry I get involved in, and what work I, I wind up doing for him, those are pretty big decisions. It seems ridiculous to me that we, he would let us just wing it and not want to lead our lives. So they tell us that, no, you know, when the New Testament canon of Scripture was done being given, gifts like, you know, prophecy, tongues, miracles, healings, uh, were all done away with and are no longer in operation in the church today. These are some very good pastors, some very solid churches who are cessationists. And uh, I'm, I, I'm not putting them down. I don't agree with that. But you don't have to believe in the gifts of the Spirit, you know, to be effective for God. I'm just saying uh, in my Bible, I see no place where it says the gifts were going to pass off the scene. Now, they make a circumstantial case. I don't see it in the Bible, though. But they say certain gifts now are no longer in operation. They have ceased. And yet, guys, it's interesting that this interpretation, so common in our time, was not suggested by a single commentator until shortly after 1906. Say, so what happened in 1906? Well... In 1906, that was the year that the famous Azusa Street Revival started at the Apostolic Faith Mission Church on Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California. And that revival, that became the beginning, or the um, Azusa became the birthplace of the modern charismatic movement, which eventually led to the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s, which gave rise to our church calvary chapel in those days there were a lot of cessationists for, for years the gifts were not even an issue but starting at the beginning of the 19th uh, at the 20th century god began to do something he began to reacquaint his church with these gifts and this revival started and it was incredible it spread all across the country and some people say even, even across the world in some ways. But um, you know how some people are very nervous uh, with any talk of the gifts of the Spirit? No, they get very nervous. They, they believe in the Holy Spirit, but uh, when you focus on the Spirit at all in the way of spiritual, they get very nervous because in their minds it's, it's all craziness. And, and they're cessationists. 
And so all the cessationists, when this revival started, uh, couldn't have this. They were, again, they were basket cases over it. And so uh, they began to use this very text uh, to prove that these things were not in operation today. Uh, they say things, said things like prophecy, tongues, and knowledge will vanish uh, when that which is perfect has come, quoting out of, uh, out of 1 Corinthians 13, verse uh, 10, I believe. So they said the Bible is that which is perfect. Therefore, there is no need for these manifestations anymore. So when the Bible was, the New Testament was fully given, all these gifts passed off the scene. Guys, the problem with that is that not only is that a new interpretation of the passage, it violates the context. Paul's not talking about the Bible. He's talking about seeing Jesus face to face. The coming of that which is perfect refers to the coming of the perfect one, Jesus Christ. And listen, with him, our perfect glorified bodies. The rapture is in view. It will be when Jesus comes again and we are made perfect as we see him face to face, 1 John 3, 2, that there will be no need for prophecy, tongues, or interpretation. Look again at the context. Okay, look again at the context. I mean, to read verse 10 and say, well, that's the completed Bible, you're just ripping that out of the context. Look at the context, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then what? Face to face. It's obvious he's got the coming of Christ in mind, the rapture, I believe. When we see Jesus finally face to face when the rapture happens. Again, 1 John 3, 2 tells us at that point, we're going to be made like him. We're going to be made perfect, glorified. In verse 12, he says, Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am, just as I also am known. Hey, I thank God for the completed Bible, that we have a copy in our laps. We have the entire New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, the entire revelation of God we have. Can any Christian, I don't care how godly or how spirit-filled, can anyone say, because I have my Bible, when, when the perfect thing comes, I shall know him just as I am known. No, obviously that's not true. He's talking about when Jesus returns, not when the Bible is completed. And just as Jesus knows every detail of our lives right now, even down to the number of hairs on our heads, when I see him, I will know him in the same way. Until then, 1 Corinthians 14, 1, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Look, guys, spiritual gifts haven't passed off the scene, and they won't. None of them. None of them. Until Jesus comes for his church, and then they will no longer, and only then, they will no longer be needed. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, Paul said, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Listen, in heaven we won't need faith or hope anymore. Because all the promises that God gave us in his word about us living with him in heaven someday, well, all the promises we hope for and by faith clung to will have been fulfilled. And that's why love is the greatest of them all, because love, listen, will not be obsolete in heaven. On the contrary, love will be absolute in heaven. Now, in chapter 14, Paul returns to the subject of spiritual gifts by dealing with one gift in particular that the Corinthian Christians had exalted above all the others, the gift of tongues. Now, we won't get to that tonight, but let me just say this, all right? Paul is going to argue that although the gift of tongues is a wonderful gift, 
He said, I speak in tongues more than you all. So he was very pro gift of tongues. And even though it's a wonderful gift, he goes on to tell us, through which we can praise God and pray to God when we don't fully know what to pray for in a given situation. So it's, it's a good, great gift. But when we come together as a local church in one place as a body, he said when the whole church comes together, the gift of prophecy is much more valuable. Much more valuable. In fact, let's pick it up in verse 2. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Now, we're going to get into all that about tongues in a week or so, but tonight I want to start looking at the gift of prophecy, which we'll just start tonight and finish next week, and then probably get into tongues at that time. But the gift of prophecy, the first thing we need to clarify is the difference between the gift of prophecy and the office of a prophet. Now, I know we've talked about this before, but uh, because this is where we are, bear with me if you've heard this, okay? We have to differentiate between what the gift of prophecy is and then the office of a prophet is. In both the Old and New Testaments, we see prophets of God. In the Old Testament, that would include men like Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel just to name a few. The word prophet actually comes from a Hebrew word that literally means to bubble forth. The idea was you were speaking on behalf of another. Speaking on behalf of another. In its most basic application, it would refer to being a spokesman for someone. A spokesman. You remember in the book of Exodus, when God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and speak to him on the Lord's behalf, uh, Moses uh, was resistant why? So, oh, Lord, I don't speak good. Okay. He stammered or something, stuttered. Uh, he had some kind of a speech impediment and couldn't talk very well. So, Lord, I can't go to Pharaoh. He's the world leader. I don't talk good. And what did God say? He said, look, I know your brother Aaron talks well. Take him and he'll be your prophet. That's what God actually said. He'll be, in other words, he will be your spokesman, Exodus 7.1. However, guys, in particular, a prophet was someone who was a spokesman for God. That was really the, the most basic idea. Unless, of course, the person was a false prophet. Okay? Now look, and this is important groundwork. We make the mistake of thinking that prophecy is only foretelling or predicting the future. You know, when you hear the word prophecy, we automatically think of somebody predicting some future event. And certainly that was true in part, uh, of what a prophet did when God sent them to speak to his people on uh, his behalf. Often he did uh, tell them things that were going to come about, and they shared those with uh, those whom God had sent them to. Uh, but most of what the prophets did when they spoke for God was simply to declare his word to his people. In other words, most of their ministry consisted not in foretelling, but in forth-telling. In other words, speaking forth the word of God. In the Old Testament, God said that they would know a false prophet 
from a true prophet in a couple of ways. Turn to Deuteronomy 18. I mean, if we don't understand this, we need to look at some of these passages. God said that they would know a false prophet in a couple different ways. Deuteronomy 18, starting with verse 20. He said, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So God says basically, look, when I send somebody to speak on my behalf, and they tell you something that's going to happen. If it doesn't happen, I mean, it's not for me then, because I know the future. Okay, I'm not guessing. So anybody who tells you they are speaking on my behalf, and they tell you something and it doesn't come to pass, they're a false prophet, stone them. Stone them. Deuteronomy 13, starting with verse 1, it says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, in other words, he does a miracle, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. Well, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. The implication is you shall walk in my word. And any character who claims to be a prophet and tells you stuff and is working miracles even, but tries to get you to worship other gods, I'm testing you, which means you have to know my word. Today we would say, what's more important, God's truth or a celebrity evangelist or pastor? You got guys on TV, they're celebrities. Celebrity evangelists, celebrity pastors and preachers. And they're preaching stuff that God has not said. But people are following them. God is testing them. Because the word of God is to be the standard by which we live our lives. And as Paul said, if I'm not following Christ, don't follow me. But if, as I follow Christ, follow me. And Paul was talking about the life he lived in accordance with what God had said. So God said, you know, he's, I'm testing you. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall put away the evil from your midst. Now in the New Testament the office of a prophet continued on. In Ephesians 4 verse 11 we read, And he himself, Paul is talking about the Lord Jesus, he himself gave some in the church to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. In the New Testament, guys, we see Agabus mentioned in the book of Acts, as well as Philip the evangelist. His four daughters were prophetesses, Acts 21 verse 9. Turn to Acts 13. We read in verse 1. Now in the church that was at Antioch, this would be in Antioch in Syria, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, 
who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So this is a church that had prophets in their midst. Let me just say this, guys. The prophets, unlike the apostles who were sent out, the apostles had a more of an itinerant ministry. They traveled around. Prophets remained in local churches for the most part to minister and to teach doctrine. They were the forerunners of the pastors because God was you know, using time to raise up men to be elders and pastors. You, you come into a town and um, Paul preaches the gospel. A bunch of people get saved. Okay, so everyone's a brand new Christian. Okay, so how do you, who, who becomes the pastor? Well, initially they had elders. And the elders were the oldest people who had gotten saved because they had some wisdom. Then he would give a, a prophets who would be kind of like uh, the forerunners of the... But then, as we're going to see, eventually the apostles and prophets passed off the scene and were taken up, ministers were taken up by the pastors and evangelists and, and teachers and so on. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But uh, as I said, the prophets sometimes spoke revelation from God. They remained more local. And sometimes they simply expounded revelation already given to the church of the apostles. Sometimes these prophets would foretell the future. Turn to Acts 11. Sometimes they would foretell the future. Acts 11, starting with verse 27. And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So he prophesied about future events. Acts 21, starting with verse 10. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So again, sometimes these prophets did speak of future things, but most often they simply spoke forth the word of God and expounded it in the local church. Now we've talked about this, so I'm not going to get into this in detail. Just throw it out again so you understand. But the ministries of apostles and New Testament prophets were primarily used by God to lay the foundation of the church. To lay the foundation of the church. Which when completed, these offices passed off the scene. We read in Ephesians 2.20, you have to turn there. Paul said the church was built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being uh, himself, being the chief cornerstone. What does that mean? The church was built on a foundation of apostles and prophets. I thought Jesus was the foundation. Well, in this analogy, Jesus is the, is the uh, cornerstone, and the cornerstone was the most important stone to the building. If you're going to build a, a, like a temple, something pretty large, the cornerstone had to be placed just perfect so that everything would align with it, and everything would be true and and, and straight and so on. The cornerstone was always... It, some people try to say that the cornerstone was like the capstone on a pyramid. And Jesus is the cornerstone. If you make Jesus the capstone like on a pyramid, that's aesthetics. That serves no useful purpose. Jesus is not window dressing. He doesn't make the church look good. 
He is vital to the church that if it's true and, and straight and it does all that, everything has to align with Jesus. But the foundation that God used the apostles and prophets to lay, listen, was he gave to them New Testament revelation, which became our completed New Testament. And after they lay, after God gave to them the revelation that became the foundation upon which the church was built upon, New Testament doctrine. Well, after the foundation was laid, when the foundation of this building was laid, they didn't keep laying it. They started to build the building on top of it. And that's Paul's point in Ephesians 2.20. God used the apostles and prophets to lay the foundation of New Testament doctrine that the church was then built upon. So in that regard, the church was built upon God's word. Jesus is the word. So we can work Jesus into that analogy too, even though Paul says he is the chief, the cornerstone. And again, guys, once the foundation was laid, once we had the completed New Testament canon of Scripture, then the office of apostles and prophets passed off the scene. I don't think they're around anymore because of Ephesians 2.20. Now, here's the problem. Many churches do believe that apostles and prophets are still around. The problem is, and if you're going to define apostles, we'll say, as church planters, okay, I have no problem with that. The problem is many don't just define them as church planters. Just like the apostles of old got revelation from God that became doctrine to the church, there are many churches that say, well, you have the old revelation, okay, but God's doing new things. He's raising up new apostles and giving new doctrine to them. That's very dangerous, especially because their so-called new doctrine much of it contradicts what God has already revealed, and God never contradicts himself. So even if God was doing that, giving new doctrine, which I don't believe he is, it would never contradict with what he's already given us in his word. And a lot of these ultra-charismatic churches with their apostles and prophets, they're saying a bunch of things that are very troubling. But again, guys, as we bring this to a close, don't confuse the office of a prophet with the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy is still very much alive and active in the church today. Uh, that is, in the churches that believe <laughs> this gift is still around today. Although in many charismatic and Pentecostal churches, as I just said, uh, this gift is often abused. Too many are really not speaking on behalf of God, even though they're running around saying, Thus says the Lord. They're not really speaking on behalf of God. They're merely speaking out of the imagination of their own heart. Remember what God, well, I'll read to you uh, some of the quotes out of Jeremiah, but um, it was re very reminiscent what's going on today with what happened in Jeremiah's day. Turn to Jeremiah 23. When we read these words, apply it to today's so-called prophets. Again, people can prophesy with the gift of prophecy, but they are not a prophet in the sense of an office. But in Jeremiah's day, of course, you had people running around claiming to be prophets of God, called by God to be prophets, but they weren't. In Jeremiah 23, 16, we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart and not from the mouth of the Lord. God's telling his people, Got a lot of characters running around claiming to speak on behalf of me. They're not speaking on behalf of me. They're telling you worthless things. They're contradicting what I have said. How could they be speaking on behalf of me? Verse 25. 
I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart. Verse 28. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord, is not, I love this, is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words, everyone from his neighbor. In other words, they steal from people's hearts the true word of God, replace it with this junk they're peddling, which is not God's word. God says, you know what? You're going to know my word because my word is like a fire. My word's like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. My word produces change. It brings repentance. It brings changed lives. My word is living and powerful. And these you can always tell these false prophets because nobody's being delivered. They say they're being delivered from things. Nobody's being delivered. Nobody's really changing and living a holy life. And there's a lot of emotion going on. But there's no power to really change a life because they're not speaking from the Holy Spirit. Today in the church, guys, we have many who claim to speak on behalf of God, but are simply tickling ears, telling people what they want to hear so as to make merchandise of them. Uh, this was something that Paul said was, would happen in the last days, that people would not endure sound, the people in the church would no longer endure sound doctrine, but would gather to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. What do people want to hear? How I can be healthy, how I can be wealthy how my business can prosper, how I can have the nicest house in the neighborhood and drive the nicest cars and, and, and have a lot of money. And that's what people want to hear today. That's why when you see these rallies on TV of some word of faith preacher, and you look, and they always rent the stadiums and stuff, don't they? The United Center and stuff like that. And it's packed. You come to a church that faithfully teaches the word, you have a handful of faithful saints. But you know what? I'd, I'd rather have a handful of faithful, spirit-filled saints than a stadium full of pew warmers who uh, have no power, who have never contemplated picking up their cross to follow Jesus. It's not about dying to self. It's about, you know, about feeding self and pampering self. But a mark, one of the marks of a false prophet teacher is always that they will try to make merchandise of people. Peter said it. I won't read it. We've read it many times. Second Peter 2. Well, let's read it. I'll read it to you, the NLT 2nd edition. So if you, when you hear me say NLT 2, that's what it is. just came out. 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3. But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. In this way they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth, God's truth, will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. I need $54 million for a new jet. <laughs> now, come on. We want you to dig deep. It's a real nice jet. Uh, clever lies to get a hold of your money, but God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. Now, again, guys, I believe the New Testament teaches that while the office of a prophet is passed off the scene, the gift of prophecy is still very much with us. 
Paul describes what this gift is all about in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 14. And we'll just read it. We won't even get into it. Paul said, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Let me say this again. In the broadest sense, in the broadest sense, to prophesy is to speak forth the words of God. Therefore, anytime a teacher teaches the Bible or a Christian shares scripture with someone, they're acting in the role of a prophet. Just the most generic uh, definition. They're acting in the role of a prophet. In other words, a spokesman for God. When you share God's word with people, you are speaking on behalf of God, his word. You're acting as his mouthpiece. You're not inspired, of course, but you are telling forth what God has said. As we bring this to a close, the main difference between being a prophet and a Christian who exercises the gift of prophecy is one is an office or a divine appointment from Jesus, Ephesians 4, verse 11, while the other is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Back in the Old Testament and, of course, even in the first century New Testament, a prophet, one who was called by God to the office of a prophet, spoke the inspired and infallible word of God, which in the Old Testament resulted in death, stoning, of any prophet who claimed to speak on behalf of God, but what they, anything they said didn't come to pass, God said they were to be stoned. We just read that Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to 22. Whereas a Christian who exercises the gift of prophecy isn't inspired, in the same sense that, that their words are infallible. They're not. And if they say something that doesn't work out to be from God, we don't stone them. Okay. But that doesn't mean that we don't hold them accountable for what they say either. What do we do? Well, Paul goes on to tell us uh, in chapter 14, but we'll have to leave it here for tonight and pick it up next week, just kind of laying some groundwork. Uh, This is a very important, and Paul's going to go on to stress, after he talks about the supremacy of love, he then goes on to say, and the greatest gift, love is is a fruit, but the greatest gift for the church as a whole you know, corporate church, is prophecy. And here's why. And he goes on to talk about that. And so we'll come back next week, God willing, and finish looking at the gift of prophecy and then start with the gift of tongues. And we'll be done then because we'll just end the study with 1 Corinthians 14, which is a very important chapter, but we'll look at it uh, with the next couple weeks. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It is truth. It is a light to light our way in the dark world that we find ourselves in, Lord. If we walk in its light, we'll never stumble in the darkness. Father, in these last days, these days of great deception, which you warned us about in your word, we're coming. They're here. And Father, the church in so many places, people don't want to endure sound doctrine, those who claim to be Christians, but are gathering to themselves all kinds of teachers who are celebrities, who are telling people what they want to hear, but are not speaking your heart. Give us grace, Lord, that we might stay faithful to your word. That, Lord, we might read it, we might study it. By your grace, we might live it, that we might be lights in the darkness. We need your grace, Lord, your strength, to do what we can't do in our own strength. Give us a heart for the word and a desire to live it in our lives, regardless of what people think about us, what they say against us. Give us grace, Lord, to stand be counted as your children. So we thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. 
We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.